Testing, testing, one, two, three. I'm gonna see if this new fruit fly catching contraption works for me better than the old one. Um, it's pretty exciting. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled about it. It's pretty loud noise now. Don't fall asleep. Here. <laughs> okay. I won't. Okay. All right. It's gonna be great. Woo! <laughs> Let's go. Welcome to Everyday Ignorance, the podcast where ignorance is unacceptable. Thank you for joining us. Please tell your friends, reshare this podcast, and give us a high rating. This is a labor of love, and we don't do it for the money. We do it for the history and helping out everyone's everyday ignorance. Because when it comes to knowledge, ignorance is unacceptable. I'm Alexander, and... I'm Peter. How was your week, Peter? Um, well, I went on this mission trip to Southern California, and yeah. it seemed kind of like Mexico or something, hmm. because it was a poorer part of Southern California in San Bernardino. Yeah. Um, at least that section of San Bernardino. And uh, it was interesting. Like, it was a good experience, um, is how I'd sum it up. And then um, the week's gotten off to an okay start. So how about you? How about yours? My week's been okay. Uh, just going ahead and working on the podcast and taking care of some other stuff. I know, was it Sunday the tire blew on my car? I oh, think? Saturday. Saturday uh, blew a tire on my car. So that was not a fun experience because it was cold right. <laughs> and snow was uh, in my face. And uh, But you came to my rescue, Peter, and you helped me. <laughs> you did come to my rescue, man. I mean, you did because you drove me to O'Reilly's and... I was actually able to get a tire iron and take the tire off. And, right. Uh, Thank you. Thanks for the encourage, encouragement. Yeah, no, that's okay. Um, that's what I'm here for. But, uh, yeah, so it was a good week so far besides that. And uh, that tire cost $265 total. Oh. So that's... Tires are insane. Tires oh. are just... Why can't we just put shoes on our cars? I know, right? <laughs> like, you know, like, why do they have to be so much? Somebody somebody told me they paid 1300 for their tires. For all four tires. Wow. So, yeah, it's it's expensive to go and put tires on your vehicle. So, yeah. when, when was the last time you got a tire? Um, It's been a few years. I should probably check the treads, like, with a penny right now, yeah. actually. Just head down there to my garage. And, like, just call the podcast off. (laughs) (laughs) You just want to go to sleep. No. Um, But uh, anyway, though, so besides all that happy topic, um, let's get into the sad, sad show that we got to talk about. (laughs) Yeah, might as well. Might as well. So uh, trigger alert, child abuse ahead. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. you might, if you have young children, you might want to... if you have young, put your earbuds in right now. <laughs> if you have young children, they should never be listening to this show. Yeah, right. Oh man. All uh, right. If your kids are listening to this show, you're a messed up parent. Yeah. 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 Don't be like Clark. Don't be like Clark. No. Yeah. So Clark Wiley, Jeannie's father, committed suicide. Um, he actually killed himself on November twentieth, nineteen seventy. The morning, this was the morning that he and Irene were scheduled to go to court on charges of willful abuse or injury to the person or health of a minor. He ended up spreading a blanket and a sheet of cellophane on the living room floor. He shot himself with a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver that once belonged to his mother. He was 70 years old. He left two notes, 
one for the police and the other for his son. The police note read, My son is out front with friends. He hasn't the slightest idea of what is going to happen. The other note for his son read, Don't take that shirt back. It's for my funeral. You know where my blue shirt is. Underwear in hall closet. I love you. Goodbye and be good. He also included at the end, quote, the world will never understand, end quote. Yeah, uh, that did happen. Uh, it's awful. I mm. can't imagine doing that. And then just, I mean, obviously the stuff he did was pretty evil to his children too. So right. he just seems like kind of a selfish, kind of a wicked guy. I don't think he was ever repentant at all of how he acted towards his kids. I don't know if he ever saw, do you think he saw what he did towards his kids as bad? I don't think so. From what I've from what I've read of preparing for the podcast tonight, he seemed like he was just like totally messed up in the head. Yeah. And didn't really realize the evil of what he was doing, the wrong of what he was doing. Do you think he was mentally ill? Something. Do you yeah. think? Yeah, I don't know. Something like that. Well, because uh, her brother and her, I don't think she's mentally ill. No. I just think that she is so basically formed into someone that it just stopped her mental growth right. in a lot of ways and right. stunted it. So, But, uh, yeah, no, it's it's pretty awful. Um, so a note about John Gray Wiley. That was Jeannie's brother. This is from the newspaper The Guardian, which I think we've talked about before, that English newspaper, that mm-hmm. it will constantly remind you that you need to make a donation. And you've read 66 free articles this year. And uh, <laughs> they're like, would you please make a donation, Seth? So, uh, John Gray Wiley, Jeannie's brother, passed away in 2011. John suffered abuses at the hands of his father. He was made to sleep on a pallet and was forced to be on guard lest the family secret be found out. His most striking quote in my mind was, I'm, living, I'm a living dead man. Jeannie, who was born in 1957, was only 20 months old when Clark, believing she was mentally retarded, confined her to one of the bedrooms. According to John, the other bedroom went unused and was kept as a shrine to his grandmother, a single woman who ran a bordello in the Pacific Northwest. The rest of the family slept in the living room, Clark in a recliner, his wife in a chair at the dining room table, and John on the floor. As John reached adolescence, his father punished him for his growing sexuality, tying his legs to a chair and pounding his testicles with the same one by three foot board he used to beat Jeannie each time she made a noise i don't think he wanted me to have children and it's a wonder i did said john whose beatings continued throughout his teen years he would write me a note excusing me from jim so the kids didn't see my privates in the showers by the time Jeannie's plight was discovered by police john then 18 had run away from home Terrified of a father who was increasingly angry and violent, Irene escaped with Jeannie to her parents in 1970. One day, she brought the 13-year-old to welfare offices, mistakenly seeking assistance for the blind. Authorities tipped off police after observing Jeannie's odd behavior. When um, the arresting officer, whose last name was Lindley, arrived at the Wileys' home, um, they said that the, he said the conditions he found there were appalling. Jeannie, quote, slept in a crib formed with chicken wire attached with a latch, he said. It was a cage for the child. 
The window was covered with aluminum foil to reflect out the sunlight. The room was as dark as a coal mine at midnight. Police found meticulous logs noting each time the paranoid father locked a door or shrouded the windows from nosy neighbors. He was a total dictator in the house, Lindley said of Clark Wiley. His word was law. Hitler could have taken lessons from him. The day Clark was scheduled to appear in court, John and a friend stood outside the house when they heard a gunshot. His father had killed himself leaving his funeral clothes laid out on the bed along with two notes and $400 for John. Be a good boy. I love you, he wrote to his son. Do you think, does anyone think it's weird right now that they have this bed room with a bed and no one slept in it? What do you mean with his mother? Like, what do you mean? Like, what bed? Whoever slept in the bed. That bedroom he turned into a shrine for his dead mother oh yeah the one that john was walking with and she got hit by the truck right nobody slept in the bed and apparently the bed took up almost the whole room wow yeah it's creepy there are messed up people i mean serial killers do this ed gein he was a famous serial killer uh from wisconsin Mm. uh they based the movie kind of they took the idea for the the from him uh, they made the movie The Texas Chainsaw Massacre off that person. Wow. Uh, he killed a couple people, and he also like would rob graves. But one thing about him and about a lot of people that are kind of just messed up in the head, and I could certainly see like Clark being messed up in the head, uh, they tend to do that. They tend to like make shrines to people, uh, especially their parents, it seems like. Because Ed Gein did the same thing with his mother. Ed Gein lived in absolute filth, and he was just a gross guy. He was mentally retarded, I think. Um, I really do think he was mentally ill. But he also kept one room that was clean, and it was his mother's room. And he never went in there, and it was just like the day that she died. You know, it was like, it's like nothing ever changed. So that, right. it's weird. I don't know why people do that, but apparently that's just a thing. So Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's weird. Yeah. So... John briefly moved in with his maternal grandparents, then stayed with friends and returned briefly to the family home. Soon he ventured on a cross-country trip, working odd jobs at a gas station, gas stations and factories, and eventually in construction in the Southwest. I had to learn about life when I got on my own, away from my family, he said. John had brushes with the law, including 10 days in jail for stealing cars. He joined the Navy, but was discharged 182 days later. The young man with no education and scars from a violent past eventually settled in a nondescript Ohio farming town, now hit hard by a slowed economy. He married and had a daughter, even though, like his father, he didn't want children. I was afraid to have kids because of my upbringing, he said. After his 17-year marriage ended, he said his own daughter turned to crack cocaine for solace. In more recent years, John who ended up becoming a diabetic without health insurance, also survived a heart attack. His daughter, uh, uh, who was age 25 at the time of writing, lives nearby, but he said she has her own emotional problems and he doesn't see much of his two young grandchildren at that time. After an arrest for drunken driving, his second one, John had lost his driver's license and bicycles and he would bicycle to house painting jobs when the weather and sporadic construction projects would permit. 
I've been able to block out my past, he said, sipping a brandy and ginger ale in his cramped but neat townhouse. When you're a kid, you try to trust your parents, he said. I think I trusted the wrong people. Today, Jeannie is well looked after in an in-private adult home for the mentally disabled in Southern California. She can only speak a few words, but she has remembered the sign language that she was taught during the brief federally funded research project that was eventually deemed a scientific failure. John pulled out a stack of family photographs, shuffled together in a plastic box, the only remnants from his past. I tried to put Jeannie out of my mind because of the shame, he said, but I'm glad she got some help. Amid his work boots, painter's ladder, and tools, the Bible sat on a small bookshelf next to a Boy Scout handbook and Success for Dummies. Only once did John's sparkling blue eyes moisten when he reflected on how his parents failed him. They didn't give me the tools, the knowledge about accomplishment, and setting goals in the Bible and God, he said. I feel at times God failed me. Maybe I failed him, but it's never too late. So, to just take a step back for a second and kind of recap the events that we've been talking about here. Um, Jeannie's father... First of all, Jeannie's father killed himself on the on the day of court when he was supposed to be brought to justice for all this horrible behavior and treatment of his family. Her mother sat in silence in the courtroom after hearing of this. She wasn't charged with anything ultimately due to the fact that she was terrorized and abused by her husband. Then Jeannie was whisked away to the care of the state. John was forced to be on his own. Here the cast of characters gets loose and fast with different doctors, psychiatrists, and scientists all involved. However, there is a turning point when the National Institute of Mental Health, um, or NIMH, it's an organization that gives the science group studying Genie financial grants, moves forward with a psychologist, David Ridgler, PhD, and the Genie team, quote-unquote. The team members included Susan Curtis, who is a scientist, James Kent, who is a psychologist, and as a as it happens, um, Jeannie latched on to James Kent as a surrogate father, and then Jean Butler, later known as Jean Butler Rush, a nursery school teacher, whom Jeannie also latched on to as a surrogate mother. Finally, there was a uh, Jay Shirley, who was a psychiatrist involved in the project or on the team. I'd like to go into a long diatribe about the team's interactions with Jeannie, but the matter at hand was that Jeannie went nowhere very fast, in my opinion. She gleaned new words from being around James Kent and also Jean Butler. She learned new things, and she also learned about new places, but the matter at hand was that she kept hitting a wall. And I will say... Uh, that the thing I didn't like about this book is that the author, he tells a story about Jeannie, and I, I guess in my mind that should be the main story, but then he mm-hmm. also, I think I'm talking about this, he also goes ahead, and there's like separate passages, which are great, but there's separate passages about different stuff. Like there's like 40 mm-hmm. pages about Noam Chomsky, who was a linguistics uh, right. expert, and then he talks about uh, I forgot his name, but it's it's this um, 
wild boy basically in France that had some of the same things that Jeannie went through and how back then science studied him. So I understand why he did that. I just didn't like it because to me it kind of breaks up the monotony of what I'm reading, I guess. Like I need need a a full story. I don't like when people pause and they just jump to like a thing 40 pages about something that we're not supposed to be talking about. It's, It's fine. I mean, that's just how he writes. So... Anyway, though, uh, Jeannie goes ahead and uh, she goes to live with Gene Butler. Uh, I do think that Jeannie needed Gene at this point in her development. Unfortunately, Gene Butler and David Ridgeler constantly clashed. In fact, David used his power to cancel Gene Butler's association with Jeannie and state that Jeannie was to be taken to a foster home family. However, Jeannie's new foster home family, where she would pass from 14 age 14 to eventually to age 18, uh, would actually be David Ridgler's home. Jeannie was a teenager, but she wasn't that separated from an animal mentality sometimes. She would be at Ridgler's and randomly masturbate, and she was now getting periods. This caused so much stress in the Ridgler's home. She also loved to collect plastic pails of of all sorts. The Ridgler's brought a puppy to the yard, and Jeannie ran for her life. She was deathly terrified of animals. If a dog was present, Jeannie was running for her life. Cats were actually even worse, with Jeannie possibly running down the road, even. Jeannie eventually did pet the dog, though. Unfortunately, being with the Ridgelers was not conclusive to her growth, and she was forced back into foster care. The most frightening scenario that the researchers encountered was Jeannie sitting before a magazine with a picture of a wolf, too terrified to move. According to Irene, when Clark even inter- ever interacted with his daughter, he actually would sometimes imitate a dog. He would stand in the hallway and bark and growl at her. So this is actually from the book, page 130. The psychologist and psychiatrist familiar with Jeannie's case remained haunted by this image. And I have asked several of them, why a dog? The nearest thing to an explanation was offered by Jay Shirley. And the explanation he gave me began, I don't know. All I can think of is that it had to do with Clark's appointing himself as daughter's guardian, he said. Remember, he was going to protect Jeannie from the world, and at the same time, he was punishing her with his protection. And people are often guarded by their dogs. He shrugged, so he became a dog. Oh my gosh. Wow. All right. Well, on that happy note, after leaving the Ridgler's home for a year, the Social Security Administration found Jeannie to have a one-third interest on the house on Golden West Avenue, and they rescinded her eligibility for Social Security payments and cut off those payments that had been supporting her in her foster home. They also demanded $1,230 for benefits that she'd already received. Then, Jeannie was shifted to John Minor. Minor was an attorney who was trained in psychology She stayed with Minor for a short time before she was shifted to foster homes. Jeannie had a lot of serious issues, though, after being moved out of the Ridgler's home. Clark, her father, had abused Jeannie by forcing her to down a whole bottle of castor oil. She started having constipation. The foster mother tried removing fecal matter with an ice cream stick. Jeannie was, of course, traumatized. Jeannie was also terrified of vomiting. She was told by one foster home that if she vomited again, she'd never see her mother again. She didn't know what she did 
that was wrong, but she was afraid if she opened her mouth, she would vomit. So she just didn't speak for about five months. Luckily, she was about to communicate to, to Susan Curtis with, using sign language. She signed that she missed her mother and how much she loved her. She would quickly gulp food down, though, in a cautious way, just like she was trained to do, you know, as a child. Mm -hmm. Gulp it down rapidly. After living with the abusive foster family, she wound up in a hospital. Yeah, um, I'll just say that, you know, one thing that, and you haven't seen a lot of pictures of her, right? No. Yeah, I mean, there's that picture on the book and stuff that yeah. you've seen. Uh, one thing that always strikes me weird about her is uh, all the pictures that you ever see of her, um, Jeannie looks like she's doing a rabbit hop uh, because she walked with her hands like this out in front of her. Wow. Because, like, just like, you know, how kids would hop like bunnies, like, she would walk like that. Like, that's how, or she would stand like that. You know, that was her way of just... Being in the world. Being, a, yeah, being in the world. Um, yeah, so she would randomly sometimes masturbate. She would, um, she would go ahead and, in the foster homes, she would also go ahead and uh, defecate in trash cans. Uh, in someone's house you know just randomly you know because i think in her mind she thought that was what she should do right. just like with the whole vomiting thing right she couldn't put words together you know like we'd, we'd kind of talk about that but her words were so broken and like right. she could say like genie love mom or genie love mommy much you know like she her her language skills were so just busted that it just right. messed her up and i kind of wonder if they had stuck her in front of a TV, what would have happened? Because I know that foreigners will sometimes watch TV to learn English, and I right. wonder if that would have helped her. That's one thing that I always thought was weird, is it never says that they did that. They just took her to, like, parks, and they took her outside. They took her to restaurants, and, um, you know, there was, a like, a, a deli worker, a butcher, and uh, he was letting her, I think it was, like, he was letting her, like, feel the food or letting her touch it or something. I forgot exactly who it was, but basically... You know, he said that she just needs love, and she did need love. But I just think that one of the things that she could have gotten instead of moved from house to house to house to house yeah. is the fact that she could have really gotten like a, uh, for one, a forever home, so to speak. Yeah. And then two, it would have been nice if she had heard TV. Uh, I I don't know if she could have understood or figured out radio, but I know for sure TV would have helped. I think personally it would have helped. Uh, a child like that because she needs to hear uh, different different words. So right, um, yeah. No, she was uh, she was messed up. So uh, Jeannie's social worker appealed to Minor for help, but was told that the four thousand dollars being guarded in Jeannie's trust fund was not hers to use for her care or to satisfy debts. It was owed to David Ridgler. Minor said, Irene, her mother, wanted custody of her daughter. Jeannie's social worker, Thomas Greenan, was outraged and requested that Jeannie be moved to East Los Angeles Regional Center. He filed a complaint with the Probate Investigation Unit of the Office of Public Guardians, or Guardian, in which he said Minor was inadequate, inadequately attending to Jeannie's welfare. Minor was furious at the social worker and contested the ruling of the social worker, eventually getting it reversed by pointing out Jeannie's house was not a liquid asset and should not be counted among the tangible riches that would disqualify her for benefits. Unfortunately for Minor, 
the DPSS, the Department of Public Social Services, had seen his inaction on the money issue and requested that Miner be replaced as a guardian, even hiring a lawyer, Janice Stone, to investigate. Irene, her mother, wanted to reconnect with her daughter, and after a lot of struggles between Riegler, Ridgler, Miner, and the state on March 20th, 1978, she was reconnected with her daughter. At this point, um, Irene... Uh, uh, Susan Curtis published a book which came out in 1977 titled Genie, a psycholinguistic study of a modern-day quote-unquote wild child. Irene was incensed at this book, book's publication and she um, then later decided to file a lawsuit against Hanson, Knapp, David Ridgler, James Kent, Susan Curtis, the scientist, and... Um, the children's hospital where Jeannie was kept. Jean Butler had since gotten married and had her name changed to Jean Butler Rush. Jean had pushed hard for Jeannie to be returned to her mother. Irene insisted that Jeannie was abused by the scientific team. She claimed she had been subjected to unethical human experiments, tests of 60 to 70 hours a week, and that John Minor was not protecting her from harm. In time, Irene's lawsuit was dismissed with her lawyers realizing that the claims of scientific abuse were not as bad as Irene had made them out to be. In fact, the suit was settled in chambers, the judge deciding that Dr. Susan Curtis was to direct a program for Jeannie for linguistic, neurolinguistic, and neuropsychological evaluation and language instructions. instruction. Children's Hospital was also enjoined to give Jeannie yearly physical and psychiatric evaluations. Susan Curtis was given full access to and use of Jeannie's records and family history records. David Ridgler wrote Irene a letter trying to set things straight and explain his side. Irene felt humiliated and that the letter hadn't helped. She hid Jeannie away, ignoring the settlement that indicated that she should not deprive the scientists of access to her daughter. With the exception of Jay Shirley, none of the scientists ever saw Jeannie again. She was put into a home for retarded adults and visited her mother one weekend each month. Irene was never seen again. She sold the house on Golden West Avenue and didn't leave a forwarding address. One thing I do want to point out, this is actually from the book. So... Irene was upset, and she says when she saw that there was a book called Genie, A Psycholinguistic Study of a Modern-Day Wild Child, she said when she saw those things that she it took, it took a lot to make her sick, but she was sick. And this is the thing. I don't know if this woman's delusional. I don't know if she just is trying to save herself. I mean, because she wasn't going to jail at that point. But this is what she said. Uh, she said... I was not frequently beaten two times in the last year. He did try one time to kill me. Jeannie was never forgotten, and I did the best I could in taking care of her. It depended on the weather to what she wore while sitting on the potty chair. She was able to move her arms, legs, bend forward, and to the side. Uh, Curtis writes as though Jeannie stayed all the time on the potty chair. Jeannie was never forgotten. Jeannie was able to move her arms when she had, when, when she had her sleeping bag on. It was not a straight jacket. It was an oversized infant's crib with a wire screen around the sides. There was a wire screen top, but I never used it. 
Yeah, right? I mean, it's just like, obviously, Jeannie did hear speech. Our home is very small. She could hear the traffic noise from the street. She heard the neighbors next door coming and going. She heard airplanes, birds, neighbors, and traffic cones. Jeannie was not forgotten. Her father did not beat her. The paddle was not left in Jeannie's room. Her father did talk to her. Once in a while, he did bark at her to distract her from making noise without opening the door. He never barked at her face. He talked to her. He did not scratch her. He did not beat Jeannie. He did not stand outside of the room, her room and bark and growl at her. There was a chest of drawers, a chair, a folding bed, two large trunks, window shades and curtains, oversized bed, and a potty chair. So, that's directly off the book. Um, wow, she's making it sound like it's not that like bad. a paradise. What do you think about that? I mean, before I kind of wrap everything up, like, what do you think about as a parent? I mean, do you think that she was delusional? I think she had mental illness. She could have. She, she could have been like suffering from what is that called? Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. Where like, um, you know, because of because of Clark's repeated abuse abuses and tr- and she even admitted right there that he did try to kill her once. Yeah. Like, that's that's crazy, bro. We've all done like, that though. <laughs> we've all we've all tried to kill our spouses at least once so i know you and your ex-wife i'm sure she's tried to kill you a few times something like yeah, that yeah. but i won't go into that but anyway <laughs> <I'm> um, <joking. laughs> in, in any case um yeah no she's she does sound kind of delusional like she's she's like trying to make it sound better than it than it was yeah. but seems like there's quite a bit of evidence that from what i understand that clark did beat her yeah and and he given his other behavior it's very feasible slash plausible that he would have done that you know yeah given how he treated john and everything like that yeah i mean the thing is that if anything was wrong obviously clark he died because he killed himself so that right there does kind of make it look, look like he's guilty. Right. Um, but then the mother says no, but I think the conclusive thing is that uh, the brother is the one that says, hey, like, I was beaten, I had to sleep on a pallet, my father slept with a gun, and, like, mm-hmm. like lay on the living room floor. We couldn't go anywhere. So uh, obviously there was a lot of abuse yeah. going on in this house. And I do think that, I don't know, I mean, Stockholm Syndrome, maybe, Uh do you think that she was complacent? Because, I mean, yeah. if you see that and then, you know, you allow your child to be abused every day, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty messed up. Yeah, it just became normalized for her to the point where she's, like, making it sound like there was proper treatment. But, like, according to one account earlier in the book from last episode, um, there was barely anything in that bedroom yeah. with Jeannie. There wasn't. There wasn't really anything. Um, Not I mean, that that would really matter. No. But no. With uh, her treatment. Well, you are a father. And yeah. when, when, do you remember when your kids like said their first words? Um, Were their first words like insurance or benefits? <laughs> <laughs> Terminate. Termination? <laughs> Terminate? No. Um... I don't remember their first words. I they must have been like between one and two years old or earlier, but mm-hmm. I mean, uh, he was dad, mom, father, mom, maybe maybe mama, 
like, yeah. you know, or mommy, um, yeah. stuff like that. Um, and then one time <laughs> he was like two or three. And then there was this, um, guest, guest speaker, uh, for at our church who is a former pastor and he was preaching out of the book of Nehemiah. And then like four days later, would just starts randomly saying the name Nehemiah like wow. over and over. And I'm just like, we were like, what the heck? Wow. He remembered that from Sunday because it was repeated so many times. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing, though. Yeah. Um, that's crazy. So I'm guessing with children, it's a lot of kind of a audio stimulation. Like they need to yeah. hear the same words. Yes, right. no, over and over good, again. bad, whatever. Right. Yeah, that's, that's awful. And then I, I think about like, how she said that oh the crib had wire around the cages or cage it basically was a cage but had wire around it and it just seems crazy that in her mind that that's normal it's just like what you know like right. how i know how do you get to that place where you're just defending it's like defending hitler it's like the rudolph host guy where he's just like well we had to do it you know all these people it's like they flip in their brain a switch that just says, well, it's okay. She never said what I did was wrong, and I'm trying my best to, to do better now. Or she never said what we did was awful, and I'm trying to be a good mom now. No, she just doubles down. That's what most of these people always, that's what all of them seem to do. They just double down on their badness. They're just like, you know what, you're right. It is. There is a, a wire, barbed wire around this area, and it's fine. Babies can't crawl out of there. Like, what? They didn't put barbed wire around there. But no. It's just like, like dude. Chicken wire. Yeah. Still, though, I mean, that you would do that, and then the... Yeah, that's messed up, bro. He would force feed her, and it makes me wonder, though, did she force feed her? You know, like, is there a lot yeah. of things that she... Because she died uh, a little bit later, uh, 2006, but I just wonder, you know, if she... I mean, if you, if you could go back in time and ask her, she'd probably say, no, I didn't force feed her, but I do think that she had some... Role something, to play. Yeah, some yeah. role to play and all that. I wonder how... They existed though. Like I wonder because, yeah. like how did what? How did you pay the bills? Did they have? I mean, maybe they didn't have lights, but I mean it's already bad enough. But did they have water? How did they get that? Or I don't know. How did you know John? Yeah, I guess he didn't go to school. Did anybody check up on him? I mean, it's just like. But but then he he referenced going to school. Yeah. In that one spot where he said that. His dad would write him yeah. a note to get out of gym class. Oh, okay. Because of his bruises. So I'm guessing it was just a lot of that. I mean, yeah. The more you think about it, it just seemed like there's probably a lot of people who just turned a blind eye. I'm guessing that right. abusing your kid was a lot more commonplace back in those days, and it was just like, well, it's just something that some people do, and we don't do that, but some people do, and right. Uh, if so and so wants to beat their son, then that's just how. You know, John's dad is. I guess I'm guessing he didn't have a social life. I'm guessing he didn't have friends. I bet it was you go to school and then you come right back here, or otherwise you're gonna get beaten. You know, right. I bet it was that. And then now he hit him like on his genitals with the the board and stuff, and it's just like, dude, like that's you know that's like war crime torture. You know, that's that's awful is what right. that is to do that to your son. And who knows what he did to Jeannie? You know, if he did that to her or. I mean, it says that he, it, we, we believe that he beat her. We don't know where he hit her or what he was doing. I mean, he was barking <clears throat> barking and growling like a dog. I, in my mind, see, I don't think that he was standing there. I think he was walking like a dog and doing that. I think he was 
trying to terrify this child, and it worked. And I think that's why she mm-hmm. was so scared when she saw a dog and when she saw like a picture of a wolf because it it basically it it triggered a hidden memory in her brain right. of you know Most that likely. thing. Yeah, and kids, if you go you know if we go back in time when we were children, you know you see something like a dog or you have a cat a cat bites you or whatever a dog mm-hmm. bites you you know you're scared of that usually so i think that um what he did is i think he he basically traumatized this child and uh, mm-hmm. terrified her um into submission into submission yeah and um she didn't have any stimulus she no. just sat basically it was solitary confinement for like the first however many years of her life, 12, 13 years of her life. It was just solitary. And she didn't really have anybody to keep company with either, it seems like, which is weird because usually when you read about this, it's like, oh, they all live together in a cave or in a garage or something or like in a room, but no, it's weird how he separated them. Yeah. I think that's that's weird. Yeah. I wonder why he it's did creepy. that. I wonder if he did that because he knew that if John... Uh, was with her that they would have tried to escape together because John could have realized, oh, my sister's getting abused. Right. I mean, if he had told a police officer, who knows? I mean, maybe that day, maybe in that time period, nothing would have happened. They would have just said, oh, stop making stuff up. You know, now probably a lot different, but right, kids, a lot of people don't believe them when they say, hey, like I'm being hit or I'm being hurt. Um, it's just kind of screwed up. So yeah, any anything that you want to add? No, just that I know that around that era, child abuse started get getting taken more seriously yeah. and actually getting addressed. Um, and then after that, domestic violence has increasingly gotten addressed more and more, but it's still obviously a thing. And, it is. And so is child abuse, I'm sure. So, I mean, we'll, like, look at that Turpin family that I'm not related to out <laughs> in California. To, you have to clarify that yeah. every time. Every time. Yeah, I thought you were. I really did. I really thought, like, oh, wow, Peter's never told me about his. That's why he's never told me about <laughs> this, this part of his family. Um, yeah, when you were growing up as a kid, I mean, did you ever see anything weird like that? Did you ever see someone get abused, even an adult? Did you ever see weird stuff back then where you're just your brain couldn't process it? You think? And now you're kind of, you're like, oh, wow, that was happening. Um, Not really. I was able to process it when my dad would be like, I won't go into too much detail, but he was basically verbally abusive toward my yeah. mom, not physically, thankfully. Yeah. But it's still abuse, like, yeah. like, and, and then witnessing that and then also experiencing some of it firsthand. Like, I know that it messed with my mind you know yeah and how i grew up but have you ever seen that as an adult where someone's abused even like a woman or a man even um i have not not as an adult um i don't remember seeing it as a kid i'm trying to think as a kid i don't remember ever seeing like you know kids with bruises and stuff i remember as a taxi driver one time uh i would pick up kids not very many, but just a, a couple. I remember I, I picked up, because it was so weird, to pick up a random kid. Like, I would never just have my kid get in a taxi. That seems so messed up. But obviously, uh, there was this kid. I picked him up. He's probably like 13. And, you know, he's sitting in the back seat. I'm driving. And then I have to drive him to, there's this place on university. And it's for, 
uh, low income, I'm guessing, or foster children or orphans. Um, but I dropped him off there and I was trying to figure out like what was going on. And I was just asking him like, Hey, how's it going? And you know, is your mom or dad going to pick you up? And he's like, no. And I kind of asked if he wanted to talk about it and he's like, no, I don't want to talk about it. And I'm guessing it was something along those lines. Um, Mm. I know that obviously women get abused by men. Uh, one thing we don't talk about that much is men get abused by women. Uh, Yeah. It's much less frequent, I think, but it does happen. It it is. Or like same sex partner violence is like an increasing thing, I think. Yeah. Um, I would say that the thing, the scary thing about women abusing men is that a lot of people won't believe it. Right. And then the woman can claim that she was hurt by that man. And of course, most people are always going to take her side instantly. So, but yeah, no, um, I saw that. I don't remember ever seeing any, uh, child that was ever abused with my own eyes. Uh, I did see, you know, in, in Fargo, uh, working with the company, I think I've talked about this, where a lady that I worked with, uh, actually I've seen two women that I've worked with, um, that had been abused, Mm. um, and had signs of abuse. I know one I worked with at a construction company and, uh, she actually had like a black eye and stuff. And we were just all like, wait, you know, why do you have that? She's like, Oh, I was playing around too much with my boyfriend. I'm like, well, okay, you know, like, I guess that can happen. You know, I mean, some people like to wrestle and play around. I was like, okay, okay. You know, like you see it one time and you're like, I'm going to let that go because that's plausible. But then, like, a few days later, like, she had a cast on her arm, you know, and it's like, what happened? I fell down some stairs. (laughs) I fell down some stairs. And I'm like, you fell down stairs? How did you? And I'm like, well... I mean, in my in my mind, I was starting to really reach. I was like, well, maybe she fell down some stairs, and then I guess what happened happened. And then, like, the next time, it was like she had, like, a cut, like, on her head or something. And I was just like, is this guy beating you? And she's like, well, no, he's not beating me. And she would just always deny it. You know, it was like, he's not hurting me. He's not beating me. And then... um, Me and a coworker talked about, like, calling the police and... Uh, we told her, we're like, hey, like we, we would like to call the police. And she told us, like, no, I don't want you to call the cops. You know, She didn't want us to. And she, um, I remember she found out that the guy that was beating her up was going to go to jail. And I don't think it was because he was beating her, but because of something else. And I remember watching mm-hmm. her get into her car and like sob and cry that he was going to jail because I guess she loved him so much or she, she liked him so much. I, I don't know why women allow that, uh, to happen to them. Um, yeah. I, I guess I don't, I'm not a woman, but I assume a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, someone beats you and hurts you. And then they say, well, I love you. And they're like, okay, well, all, it's all good now, you know? And obviously yeah. it's not, you know, when someone's trying to, physically destroy your body but yeah i know that happened and then i know she had some issues drinking too so uh it is out there um we just don't see it you know i mean i'm a field service technician eight to five you get off at like three o'clock in the morning (laughs) working at your call center job i just work from my home yeah at a call center yeah you work from your home um but you know we don't see that you don't see that stuff but if you but the thing is we don't go to those places if you go to the the bus shelters or if you go to the women's shelter i know i had to work on something in a woman's shelter in town and like i had to sign a bunch of paperwork saying like you can't talk about what you see here and you can't uh, say anybody's informa- 
information if you see it here and you can't say their name and do you know what that noise is <laughs> okay i hope it's not this i think it's a car outside oh okay uh but you can't say their name and you can't talk about what you've seen in here and i mean it was a lot of like paperwork and lockdowns just to get inside i got inside and it's just like okay you know i've been in banks uh, a few banks where <laughs> they'll just let you walk behind the counter like it's just because i have a uniform on and it looks like i have a tool bag i could have a gun in that bag they have no idea but here it's like they lock it down and there's lots of people in there you know it's not like i can just go start beating somebody up and somebody will allow me to i couldn't even get on the printer i was supposed to work on without knowing the code mm. so i mean they they locked it down hard um so it is weird uh those kind of things do happen and it's awful mm-hmm. so uh, I guess if there's somebody that's listening and you are being hurt, I would suggest that you reach out to a family member or even somebody from your church. And obviously the police, if you can, if you don't feel safe doing that, uh, I would just try to gather as many resources as you can, even if you're a child. And like I said, contact an adult, family member, and just try to get out of there as soon as possible because it's not worth it. Even if you're a man and you're being beaten by your wife or girlfriend, it's not worth it for you to go ahead and allow them to hurt you. It's really mm-hmm. not. You know, it's not worth for for anybody because you don't know what they're capable of. You don't know if they're gonna snap one day, and um, you know they might go from beating to stabbing one day, or they might pick up a glass or a hammer or something, and you could die. You could be killed. So it's something to think about. Um, right. Anything else you want to add besides after that happy time? Was there? There's oh, nobody behind you. Don't worry. No, no, no one's gonna beat no, you. No, I was looking if I had my phone. I'll because protect you. There's some sort of resource. It's like something like one eight hundred get free for like trafficking victims mm. that I saw, either in California or here. I think it was in California, but mm. anyway, there are resources out there if you are being trafficked mm. or abused. There's um, a lot of different options, and you don't have to go it alone or continue in this cycle of power and control. Yeah, because that's really what what keeps you there. What keeps people there is the wheel. The I think it's the wheel of power and control. Mm. All the different ways that like abusive partners control you, like how Clark controlled his family in all aspects, Mm. pretty much like very typical it is um and it is weird you know i i assume her mother never abused her again as far as i know she never did plus also she was being watched uh at that mm. point Jeannie was um so i think there'd be a lot it'd be a lot harder to do that um but yeah i'll just uh read this last part so uh one thing i thought was interesting about the book was that the the afterward the author russ reimer uh, the book's author eventually was able to get in contact with Irene when she was still alive and was able to speak to her about her daughter. He didn't feel right about barging into Jeannie's life because I think Jeannie had enough barging, enough people coming into her life all the time. He did talk to her, and he also mentioned that he wanted to see Jeannie, but he just didn't feel like it was right at the time. Uh, the mother before in the past had told him several times that she didn't want to talk to anybody about any of this stuff. So I guess it was kind of one of those, like, let's put it behind you. The fact is that Jeannie was found to have most of her activity on the right brain hemisphere. The right brain is good for performing motor functions, but it's terrible for language. The left brain is what she needed for language. 
unfortunately, she did not have that working like it should have been. And in the book, they talk about how at a certain age or a certain point, there's a kind of a shock to our systems with hearing language, and it starts to trigger something in our brains. And Jeannie missed out on that age and that time period. And so once you keep going past that time period, it messes you up even further. And so now she's where she is now. So um. to sum it up, Jeannie was fought over all of her life. She was treated like a piece of something that some of the scientific community tried to win grants and prestige over. She was abused, terrified, and hurt for most of her adolescence. She never had a home, just homes. Irene Elizabeth Oglesby Wiley died August 3rd, 2006. Her bones were so far from Oklahoma where she grew up. I'd like to think that Jeannie visits her mother's grave and thinks about her. Because when our souls are damaged, our minds destroyed, and our bones dust, we live on only in memories. <laughs> <laughs>